Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunar Neunheim, futurist and author. In episode 106 of the podcast, the topic is the disruption of failure. Our guest is Colin Hunter, CEO of Potential Squared. In this conversation, we talk about how to beat failure at its own game, embracing it, squeezing it for impact, creating playgrounds as a leader, and stretching yourself through play, especially by sailing your ship around in rough water. Throughout, we explore how to talk about difficult things. The host of this podcast, uh, Trun Arne Unheim, PhD, is the author of Health Tech, Rebooting Society's Software, Hardware, and Mindset, published by Rutledge in 2021. Future Tech, How to Capture Value from Disruptive Industry Trends, published by Kogan Page in 2021. Pandemic Aftermath, How Coronavirus Changes Global Society, and Disruption Games, How to Thrive on Serial Failure, both published by Atmosphere Press in 2020. Leadership from Below, How the Internet Generation Redefines the Workplace by Lulu Press in 2008. For an overview, go to trondsbooks at trondentime.com slash books. At this stage, Futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors. To check them out, go to futurize.org slash sponsors. If you are interested in sponsoring the podcast or to get an overview of other services provided by the host of this podcast, including how to book him for keynote speeches, please go to futurize.org slash store. We will consider all brands that have a demonstrably positive contribution to the future. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurize.org, where you can find hundreds of episodes of conversations that matter to the future. I hope you can also leave a positive review on iTunes or in your favorite podcast player. It really matters to the future of this podcast. Thank you so much. Let's begin. Colin, how are you? I'm very good, Tron. Doing very well. Yeah, I'm getting there. Cup of tea in my hand, so I'm, I'm all right at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> well, as no, look, we're handling a kind of an interesting topic, mm. and uh, it's been a rough last few days for both of us mm. uh, not that rough but no. you know work compared Usual, to everybody stuff. else maybe not but you know it's still t- you know <laughs> you've got to take your yeah. own context <laughs> exactly so here's how i want to how i want to start it calling if i didn't know better about you mm-hmm. i might have written you off as just a sales guy who is in consulting and does leadership <laughs> yeah there's a, a lot of reasons why I'm not going to be doing that. Yeah. Mm. Can you explain a little bit about your background? Because, yeah. you know, what one can read on LinkedIn and other things is, you know, you, you're a clever UK guy who went to university, mm. you know, honored in geography, did an MBA, mm. right? Strategic marketing. You're, you're, you're right up there with the young guys, right? You've done the right things. Mm-hmm. You've got a degree. Um, and then you went into sort of sales and consulting. Mm-hmm. Yep. But it, you know, our conversation uh, and the the fact that I'm learning more about your your book, which is coming out, it tuned me into something that I am not only just interested in, mm-hmm. but I, I I'm really deeply passionate about. Mm-hmm. And it is this sort of concept of getting to know yourself, even. Yeah even later in life, whenever you are ready for it. Yes. And I wanted you to maybe just uh, give us a sense of where you're coming from mm. and and what sort of legacy that you've been carrying on your shoulders. Yeah. So, well, let me take you back to school. So all my school reports said arrogant, 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 arrogant. Yeah, must do better. He will fail. And I remember a moment at school where one of my teachers basically wrote a letter home to my parents saying, you know, Colin should become a shoe shop manager. He should leave school now and not further go to further education because he's wasting the educator's time and he's better to do that. Yeah, and it was that moment that I I stormed upstairs at the age of 17 into the school and I went in to see this teacher um, and I called him out of the class and I we had a heated argument all the way down to the headmaster's office who had called us to it because he'd heard about this. And he sat me down as an adult with this teacher who he said, there's no teacher, no pupil here. He said, 
let's start a conversation. And he turned to me and he said, you're coasting. You're not working hard enough, but I know you've got talent. Yeah. And he turned to my teacher and he said, and your job is to nurture it. Yeah, that's your job. Now, that was the start of a conversation for me about my future. And it was the first time that anybody had almost stuck up for me. But that led to home that my parents started a conversation with them about my path. And I went down a path with arrogant, with so the salesperson in me said, I'm gonna do this. I am I'm gonna be resilient. And I, you know, I grew up in Scotland in, in the northeast of England where, you know, you, you grow up with an attitude which is I can do this, I can just get on with it. So I started to look to others for advice. I started to look at my parents. I started to look at everybody else for advice, and they were guiding me. So I went to university. Um, I got a degree. I spent most of my time at university being social. Um, I came out with, you know, a 2-2 degree. So in theory, you're being very kind of me to say intelligent, you know. Um, I, to be honest, I was, I was still coasting. But I took advice, and I managed to get into a role with Arthur Anderson when I left uh, college. Um, and I was in there. But it was the start of this conversation in my head, which is I was being a tax consultant and didn't feel right. I was working in a booth doing tax computations, didn't feel right. And in some ways, I was lucky the office closed. I was able to get out of that office because my boss, who called me, and he looked at me and said, so when are you leaving? And I went, how did you guess? And he said, because you're not cut out for this. Yeah. So I went, I went, I went on to Procter & Gamble, and this is a long answer to a short question, but I went to Procter & Gamble. It was at Procter & Gamble I was doing a job that was pharmaceutical sales, marketing, but I was doing a job that I hated. Um, and I got to the point, well, yeah, very quickly, where I suddenly realized that I was also doing a job I hated, but I was also burning all my energy in doing that job, you know? And it was allowing me to to almost run on empty most of the time. I was socializing, I was working, yeah. Everything was, was was happening in that space. And it got to the point where I just, I had a breakdown, yeah. So if you take the first half of my life and my career, it was all building up to that breakdown. The second half of the career is about, almost as a mentor to others, working out how I could help other people to avoid those breakdowns, to avoid the same mistake I've made to avoid listening to other people's voices and not their own inside their head to go there. So that's what I've started to do in my business and started to do in my career since then and worked in a different way. But the breakdown for me, that it's something I share, I'm not proud of, but I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't feel any guilt or shame in saying that I spent two weeks pretty much in tears at my parents' house, you know, and it was only a, a good doctor who sat with me um, and he said, he said something to which has stuck with me all the while since. He said, you only have a finite amount of energy and you've got to choose how to replenish it. You've got to choose how to spend your energy. Yeah. And that's where I took the sales piece of my, my arrogance to say, so I can do this. I can prove to people that there is a different way to do this. That's my career now. Yeah. Colin, this is, um, it's powerful stuff. Mm. And, and I know that there's even a way to explain this uh, that maybe is relatable to to other people because you told me a, a, another tidbit, mm. which is not a tidbit. It's a it's an important part, mm. and I was I guess digging for it in my question. Mm. You said earlier to me, you said I'm a student of my grandfather, mm -hmm. and then you told me he was a professor of theology. <clears throat> Turned out I've even you know looked looked at his books. Mm. He A.M. Hunter. Right, so uh, famous theologian, yeah. uh, New Testament theology, mm -hmm. a, a, a big deal yeah. in in Europe, in the UK for sure. Mm -hmm. And then, so so you know, when you're a student of your grandfather, that that does mean something. Mm -hmm. It can be very inspirational, mm -hmm. but it can also be a bit of a burden. And I guess that's uh, you know something I wanted to to ask you about. And then you said, you know. Mm -hmm. Your, your father, who, who was a pediatric cardiologist, was also an inventor and invented medical devices, basically, mm -hmm. for, for pediatric uh, cardiology. Now, I think I can relate a little bit mm -hmm. to what you're saying. Mm -hmm. My grandfathers and father were, were also notable people in their own fields, yeah. right? My, my father was a professor of cognitive psychology, mm -hmm. and... Um, Studied intelligence. Mm. Now, 
what's more humbling than that, right? Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I'm still trying to find um, mine. From there. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about this because mm. th- there is this dichotomy. Clearly, we can get inspired by our legacy and our family mm. background, and and it helps us in in all so many ways. So this is not no. a- in any way my way of introducing the topic of the sob story of the elite. No. But I do want to ask you a little bit about how something you you, you said about mm. this breakdown being related to kind of an imposter syndrome. Yeah, I mean we're not going to psychologize too much, but yeah. just give me a little sense because it's relevant to to the next book uh, and the next stage in your career, which I think can be very valuable to leaders uh, worldwide. Yeah. So I my my grandfather, professor of theology. I grew up as A. M. Hunter's grandson. I was. Traveling the States, and the only way I was ever introduced was this is A.M. Hunter's grandson, which got me some benefits. So, you know, I got free board and lodging, use of people's cars, everything else. You know, it was uh, it was a nice thing to have in certain ways. And I, um, my grandfather was amazing. He was a, a bright person. We talk about intellect. He was fundamentally at the top end of that scale. But he also had a, a beautiful way of teaching others. Um, he used to fish, and as a professor of theology, taking your students to fish is a meaningful bit if you go back to theology and, and religion and uh, fishermen. It, 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 there's a certain resonance there with other fishermen. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. so, you know, yeah. even just doing that, and I'm going, okay, so what's my version of it? So I grew up wondering what my version is, but my father grew up with that as well. And he then invented Echo for um, a diagnosing abnormalities in babies' hearts. And he was off doing that. And in the 70s was at the forefront of Maggie Yuppin's work in, in the UK. And therefore, I suddenly realized I had this high bar to go to. Um, and I wasn't like them. I realized very early on, I was, you know, when I was asked by my grandfather, for those who know the Robbie Burns, Robert Burns uh, poetry, I was asked to re- remember and recite Tamashanter. And I couldn't do it. <laughs> and neither could I be bothered to do it, to be honest. And therefore, I had that look in his eye that said, hold on a second. Is this really my grandson? I'm not really that proud of this this person in front of me. But I was doing unique things at the time. I just never realized it. I was doing some things that probably they uh, maybe never really didn't realize. I had the ability to build relationships. I had the ability to to have a wide network of friends. So I, you know, even my parents used to say there was different forms of communication, and the newest one was Colin. I just had this ability to go off and talk to people. However, my imposter syndrome said if I wasn't pitching and that level of intellect and that level of achievements. Uh, and it's not a sub story because there was a degree of a bar that was set to me and it made me, it lit a fire under my backside as I would talk to people now um, to do that. But I was always trying to compare myself to them and not to who I really was. You know? So, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of something which is, you know, I'm a father mm-hmm. and it's extremely easy to have these enormous expectations for your kids, whether they're your your son or or your daughters, in my case, but you know I have both, and it's so dangerous because I, there are certain things that I have given up, and I'm like, okay, I'm not gonna, mm. you know, I have certain interests, but there are certain things you're sort of pushing. You're like, okay, this is fundamental to me, and I feel it mm. when the kids are pushing back. Like right now, I'm teaching them botany, like plant names. Yeah. And it's not something they apparently seem to enjoy. <laughs> like I have this garden with, uh, I don't know, 50 signs of plants, mm-hmm. including in Latin, and I'm having them memorize these Latin names. And apparently that's a strange thing to do, and mm-hmm. I'm getting a lot of flack for it. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe that's funny, but I do realize the seriousness of yeah. this, right? Because there are maybe other more serious parts of, of my legacy uh, that I'm pushing onto them. Mm-hmm. I agree. And this is, you know, I'm not an expert in parenting and, you know, I'm not even going to say that I, you know, would even try and give advice to others. But what it's what it's made me realize, and I'm really just taking this down to myself, was I started to try identify the times I was happiest and the times that I was really felt I was adding value. Um, and it was only when I did an MBA. So I left Procter & Gamble. And in some ways, if you look at it, you know, <laughs> To, to be able to take a bunch of screw-ups that I had in my life, in my view, this is my voice, a bunch of screw-ups and failures, and actually go off and take a year and and play, yeah, was great. And I, I mean play in the, the in a different sense, in that I was playing hard in the content, 
I was playing hard outside with a group of people who were exceptional, so good friends in there. But one of the key things was I was playing and pitching at a level that I could pitch off against some very senior folks from industry. So I was getting to the point where I was starting to prove to myself that not only could I pitch intellectually to them, but I, through a curiosity and a questioning structure and a way of collaborating, bringing people together, I was adding so much more value to them than I ever thought. And so this moment of came to me throughout that year that I was starting to be what I would now describe as myself. I was the real column, the one that probably I was when I was 10, 11 years old. And I was just using that to enhance my progression in life. And that was a, a profound moment for me that um, was brought to life when one of the people at the NBA went for an assessment center for an Oxford, Oxford group, uh, an organization I later joined. And he failed that assessment center. And he's a special forces, ex-major special forces. So it was one of the people who I was always looking up to and going, wow, you know, he'd been in major battles, led major teams. But he said when he was given the feedback about what he failed and he said, if that's what you're looking for, behavioral pattern, then recommend two people and one of them was me. And I was so lucky that by being myself and demonstrating that through the year, he was able to pick that up. And I walked into a role that I never thought I was going to do and I absolutely love it. And I'm one of the lucky people that wakes up every morning and bounds out of bed at 5 a.m., well, sort of creaks out of bed nowadays at 5 a.m. and says, you know, I love my work and my role. But it wouldn't have happened if I had fall, hadn't fallen out of a way of thinking and a way of life that allowed me to then be myself and find a different path. All right, Colin, this is this is uh, powerful stuff. Let's move straight to mm. what you're actually doing because you have a business now mm-hmm. and I teed it up as, I guess, a leadership business that wasn't just doing, you know, your regular stuff. Mm. There are a couple of things that you're doing that I found interesting and I wanted you to just maybe talk a little bit about it and then we can talk about your book. But mm. you, you do leadership training, but you have this concept of playgrounds mm. So you, you did speak about play earlier. I happen to agree that play, I mean, it's not actually a very original no. point of view. Play is important. <laughs> so, so I think, you know, at a generic no, level, I think we kind of agree. Trump who's ever thought about that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but um, it is, I guess, how you operationalize it. I'm, and I'm curious mm. how you make leaders feel safe. Mm. Safe enough that you uh, can do what you just did for me, mm. which is, Dig up a little bit, uproot a little bit one more time mm-hmm. into part of your history that, you know, it's not like a tea topic for like five o'clock tea. It's mm-hmm. just not something you share with everybody every day. And it, and it hurts mm-hmm. sometimes. And, you know, it's not really what you want to think about every day anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but you seem to have a sense of, you know, not only is it important, but you have a way of fostering that in, you know, in regular business. Yeah. How do you do it? Mm-hmm. And and then as you were doing, I guess, a second thing, you seem to uh, combine that with um, the playground with sort of uh, challenging leaders mm. to sail out to rough water, you say. Yeah. How do you do all these things? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's been an iterative process for us. But let me take one of the first things I ever did. I was running a personal brand session. And I was running it for clients, and we were talking. We were talking in that context about how people get to have a projection of themselves that they want into the real world. So it goes back to some of my pieces about how do I get off, how do I develop my authenticity and develop the authenticity as a key bit to project it out. So I started doing this exercise where I would get up in front of an audience, say two hundred people from an organization like Accenture, and I would say, right, pair up, get in your pairs, and take a pad of paper. And what I'd like you to do is on the left-hand side of that pad of paper, I'd like you to write down everything you like about me and everything on the right side, everything you don't like about me. And I'd love you to do this as an exercise. And I was giving them permission to say, just go with your first impressions, your thoughts about me. And being able to stand up there while they gave me some positives, gave me, well, you're confident, you speak well, all of those things. But on the other side of the list was arrogant salesperson you know, you, you talk about the sales in the introduction, you're a salesperson, so therefore I'm not sure I trust you. Um, your dress sense is terrible, and luckily people hopefully can't see my dress sense, but it is pretty bad, yeah. But there was this piece that I would, it was the way I was role modeling the ability for me to accept that feedback, to ask questions around it. 
my work. Now, once they'd give me their feedback, I then said, okay, so even with groups of 200, I'd picked out and identified maybe 10 or 20 people in the audience and said, I've, you've made a first impression on me, and I've got three things in my mind about you. So with that in mind, start to write down what it is I think of you. Now, most people were very happy to give me feedback. And somewhere, if they weren't laughing, I'd encourage them to laugh and have a, a joke and stretch themselves. When they flipped around, they suddenly realized that they had no clue what I thought about them. And there was one of the first playgrounds we had. Because in that moment, we were starting to explore that first impressions, but not only the first impression concept, but the physicality, the vocality of how they came across, how they were sitting. And I'll give you one small example. There was a lady who was sat in the front row, and she had a face like thunder. And so I picked on her, and I said, okay, so what's going on? Your face is telling me something. She said, I hate this. You're asking us to be false. I don't give up. And I won't use the word on the podcast, but what people think about me. I said, brilliant. That's great. So that's a, that's a fantastic brand statement. And so we got a discussion going with her and the rest of the group around that. And they all said, well, that's great, but it's got consequences because if you don't give up about what people think about you, there's a price to pay down the route. And she said, I'm fine with that. So we had this honest, frank conversation about what you choose to be, what you want to be known for, and the impact it has and the choices you make in life. There's one example of a playground that was caused that we still do, that people are borrowing that as an example to run in front of clients. We actually do it for pitching into client work. Yeah, so we do it just to get a feel. Can I ask you a question about the implications of what that person told you? Yeah. Do you think that that's a fair statement in today's workplace? Because there is a balance between sharing and oversharing, yeah. and some people want to keep private. Mm -hmm. But I, I realize that it's a, not only a risky strategy, but it perhaps doesn't instill confidence, you know, from you know, in other people, right? And that there, like you said, it's a price price to pay. Can you survive, or is that such an old school attitude that those people are going to get much less opportunity? going forward? I think it started a conversation. So this was a strong character. And you've got to use judgment in these circumstances. She was willing to say what she thought. Um, and in a lot of cases, you know, you think about the echo chambers that happen at the moment in the world, where people are saying these things and not getting the chance to have conversations. What I was willing to do in the audience was willing to do with her. And not to slate her, not to say this is a bad attitude. You need to change your attitude. It was a, right. it was a conscious thing, which is be curious. Let's explore that more. And, and she had every rationale for it. And she knew the consequences. Um, now, I still knew her six months, seven months later. She still had that. Now, joking aside, she worked in internal audit. She had a tough skin. She knew that she had an attitude. She had a tough skin to that. Um, but there was, a, there was an underside to it. You got to explore later on. But she still held that because that did her the, the right thing for her at the time in the space. Now, has she changed it? Maybe. But, you know, yeah. that's for her to choose whether she speaks up. It's me to hold that space and be, you know, clear that this is a safe space to play. And nobody looked down on her for it. Everybody was sharing just a massive curiosity about how she could say it and why she thought it, you know. So let's explore the other side of the coin. Your your new book coming out soon mm. is called Be More Wrong. Mm. Tell, tell me about it because mm. it would appear to be uh, similar to what I think is the right approach. I mean, I wrote just wrote a book last year about disruption mm. games, about how you have to embrace failure. Mm. And, and, you know, my point is in order for failure to really count, mm. it has to actually be deep and long, not shallow and fast. And this goes against certainly everything that people in Silicon Valley think yeah. about because there's like fail fast, like this whole ridiculous idea about how startups should be all fun and you should quickly just recover, test a bunch of things and then just get on with it and not, not bother. Mm. It strikes me that you and I at least resonate a little bit in... Well, my belief, let me state my mm -hmm. belief. Now I want to hear your book. Mm -hmm. But I think that true learning most of the time is quite painful. Oh, uh, and that you cannot enable reflection unless it's not the point is not to take risk and fail and achieve pain. But when you do have pain, mm -hmm. you need to treasure it, yeah. is sort of my point. Yeah. And now I wanted to just ask you, what is all of this mm. be more wrong about? I mean, are you actually going further than me? You're saying, 
go and be wrong? So, so I'm saying that if you think about stretching, so if you think about the analogy, which I didn't really answer your question about sailing the ship out of the harbor, to stretch right. yourself, to, 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 be, to compete nowadays in whatever you do, for me to compete in what I do, to be able to come on a podcast and you say, so give me your unique view on the world. And I'm going, oh, God, okay. So hold on a second. Give me a, five minutes and I'll think about my unique thought. I've got to work on testing some things uh, out in rougher seas. Um, and therefore, you get to this principle to test is you've got to at some point be more wrong because you've got to learn fast and you've got to try something that doesn't work. So I've got a hypothesis that I'm working on and hopefully I'll test and prove by the end of the, before I die, which is that introverts make the best leaders. Yeah. I just, I have this belief that all the best leaders in my time for me have been introverts, but I want to prove it because there's a group of people who are introverts who think it's leadership is all charisma. It's all tap dancing, jazz hands up front. And for me, the most strongest leaders I've ever had. Now to test that out, to be, an introvert and and prove that it they make the best leaders. I've got to create playgrounds to show people what it is to be that and how it works and the power it has. And occasionally I'm going to fail, but just because I have one failure or one thing that I get wrong doesn't stop me from going. Okay, I've found a way that doesn't work. Yeah, let's go and let's explore other things. And I, I always love there's a, a great IDEO story, IDEO Design Agency, Design Thinking Agency. And there's the great story that they talk about going out and doing research, testing. And there's the, they were testing one thing. I absolutely love this story. But they were testing one thing, which was the ability for old people to open medicine bottles, you know, with arthritic hands. And they went and they asked this woman. They sat her down in her home and said, do you have a problem with opening uh, your pill bottles? She said, not at all. Now, classically in research, you'd go, tick, not at all, move on. It was that point where they said, so show me. So she said, okay. So she took them through the kitchen. She took them to a, an electric meat slicer with an open blade, switched it on so it was wearing, and just zzz, opened that pill bottle. She doesn't have a problem with pill bottles. Now, health and safety-wise, big problem. But, but that opened her eyes to think we're maybe looking at the wrong thing. We're looking at the wrong way. And that was just a great example for us about show me how it's done. Let's test it. Yeah. And let's learn fast. So I would encourage people to, to stretch themselves. Ozan Barrel says it best in thinking like a rocket scientist. He said, learn fast. And you talked about reflection. Let's do something. Let's learn. Let's measure it. Is it working? Yep, it is. If it's not, what have we, what have we learned? And move on. Yep. So let me just challenge you on that. I mean, I guess I'm saying a little bit different. I'm just saying you can try to learn fast, mm. but don't learn too fast. Yeah. Because... I mean, I think there's certain things you should learn faster, mm -hmm. but there's other stuff that just takes its own time. But but I wanted you to just reflect more at like, let's say you have failure. Mm -hmm. How do you beat failure at its own game in the sense that you sort of embrace it and squeeze it for the impact that it has? So yeah. because that that's something that I guess you would say introverts are good at. Mm. So you know, let's assume that being introvert has a consequence in, in public life. So, you know, you have a public role and you're an introvert. There's a discrepancy there, wouldn't you say? So, so you know, to address that discrepancy, is it because they overcompensate or, you know, in a positive way that they actually learn the game and then play the game that's not them and then become so good at it because they are essentially playing a role and thereby they reflect more around their social surroundings because they're not just in it for their ego. They could care less about whether they were liked in a group context. But they know they need to play to some of those things and, and play the game and understand it. Maybe they understand it deeper than others. Is that what you're saying? So I, I've got to take us back to the systems here because it's not as, I don't think it's as binary as introverts and leaders. There's systems involved in here. So if, if I take yeah. probably one of the uh, most impactful leaders that I know at the moment is Angela Merkel, just stepped down. But she's been at the helm of Germany for oof, a long while, and she's done an amazing job. But she's done it without fanfare. She's done it without great speeches. And in fact, when you listen to her, it's almost that she consciously doesn't speak with flair. So, But if you look at the systems that she has about the ability to build relationships and have honest conversations in those relationships, her energy over the time of running a country like Germany and running 
than be involved in the European Union. Her ability to be fresh in her thinking and ideas, and when it fails, you know, she's had her time where she's had her failures, and she's had failures within either economic terms, social terms, and her ability to be guided and learn from those. Those are all systems. So when we talk about learning fast, for me, it's about the systems. And when you talk about squeezing the most out of the learning, yeah, it's about squeezing the most out of learning, but thinking wider um, than just. So what was that that caused me to fail then? Because the systems impacting on one failure can be massive. And so, yes, but the principle of doing it fast is if, if your product is perfect, you're normally too late to the market. And for most businesses, to, to be able to get something out there early, get good feedback from the clients and the customer, and be able to iterate it up is much more powerful than being perfect and realizing there isn't a market for your product. And that's what I mean by Lenfast. It's the same for VR. We're testing VR at the moment, yeah? Put it out of the market. Now, I think we're still probably too early in the market because most people are just not used to it, yeah? Or the product's not good enough. But does that stop me testing and experimenting learning fast? No. Let's get it out there. Let's experience it. And we're getting some great feedback and some really strong, powerful developmental feedback. I'm, I'm interested in that mm. because, you know, disruptive forces is something I, I care a lot about. And it's usually something that starts with technology. But certainly in my mind, there are many, many other aspects that are important. Um, you know, I'm just out with, with a book on, on future of technology. But, mm. but the point there is... To sort of say that technology isn't always about the technology, it would seem to me that you, you you're exploring virtual reality, which actually, um, you know, a lot of people hope that that's going to work someday. Yeah. You seem to think that it's already working in a leadership context. That fascinates me yeah. because to many, it's like tech first, right? So they're like, "Oh, this is fun to explore, and someday it'll be fantastic." Mm. But other than a few niche use cases, right? Mm -hmm. Virtual reality has always been a visionary technology. Now, maybe after COVID, it, you know, the investment certainly, definitely in in augmented reality has you know skyrocketed, mm -hmm. and and there are some companies doing very serious work. Mm -hmm. And I believe, you know, you tell me how this is going, but certainly even the U.S. military apparently, you know, bought a massive. A virtual reality contract from one of the big vendors. How are you? So they certainly think that they can do something serious with it. How are you using it? What effect is it having? And how does it relate to this psychology uh, that you're involved with here in a gr group psychology context? So I, I think I, I put it down to emotion. Um, and this is why it's working for us. We've had a history of building immersion, so we use professional actors to bring to life development. And so, say, for example, we re help restructure um, British Airports Authority, Heathrow and Stansted and Gatwick, their customer service area, by the use of actors. So powerful was the immersion experience of people going into assessment centers with those actors that one of the actors was offered a job at Heathrow as head of customer service because he was so good. So they don't remember this actor is now famous. They remember his role and they remember how he felt and how it made them feel. And when they're successful, it helped them. But when they weren't successful, it also helped them to be clear, yeah, it's because I did this that I didn't get the role. And that's an amazing, powerful experience. It's the same. How exactly were you using this actor because yeah. or these actors? Because I, I, I love this combination mm -hmm. because, you know, this is, again, like when I hear virtual reality and people say immersion, it's usually like, it's all just about the technology aspect, mm. but you have embraced immersion in all its forms, and you started with the human yeah. element, the the Shakespearean immersion, <laughs> with the, the Shakespearean immersion. Theater, yeah. theater. Yeah, <laughs> there's more drama yeah. than Shakespeare, as one person said to me here. So, I mean, and there yeah. is because if you think about bringing this to life and giving people a playground, we started using actors. Um, because we, we saw a program called Who's, Whose Line Is It Anyway, where the comedians were interacting with the audience, and it was fun. And we thought, so why, why don't we get an immersion of different styles of conversations by getting two actors up front, getting the audience to virtually have a remote control that they can control the conversation and have a play with different styles of conversations. And all we did was we asked the actors to do a three-minute set up front 
uh, with a, a script around a particular topic. It might be giving an audit report, for example, an audit to the, the, uh, an auditee. It might be a coachee. It could be just a difficult conversation to be had. And we kept one of the actors in what we call the fixed seat, which was the person we needed to have the conversation. The other seat was called the hot seat for very good reason, which is we got people into the hot seat to have a go. Um, and there's, there's, there's that moment where the actors are able to give, when you give the actor a pinch, the actor is able to give a proportionate ouch back to you in terms of your reflection. So where there was a, a classic moment in one of these things where we had a senior members of a very successful consulting firm. And there was about 16 people in the room and all 15 of them were managing director level and one was slightly more junior. And we were using this actor and the forum theater started and the 15 senior leaders all went first. And it was a bit like a scene from airplane where the, the passenger is getting hysterical and there, you know, people are lined up with different forms of clubs and baseball bats. These 15 senior leaders were convinced that their style would work. So somebody said, you've got to be tougher. Okay, get you in the seat, have a go. And the actor would take them on, spit them out, bring the next one on. You know? So it was, it was a lot of learning, but it was, they got to the end of the 15, and it was that moment. It was almost you could have had a film about it. They turned around to this more junior person. He said, I've got an idea. And he said, he just got up to the actor and he said, can I get you out of your chair? And he said, I'm, I'm seeing three points of view, and I I'm, want I'm to place three points of view in the different parts of the room. And I want you to go stand in that part of the room and just – hear what it's like to hear that point of view. Now, call it bimodal coaching, whatever it was. It was so powerful. And you could see all the senior leaders just falling out of thinking going, wow, why didn't I think of that? Yeah, that's immersion. Yeah. And they still remember. I still work with those people. They still remember that that piece. So if go back to the British Airports Authority piece, BAA, we put people in a room with this actor who tested their ability to be agile in the moment and listen and engage in a different way. And we sat observing them. And all we did was we saw their natural way of reacting with people. And we were able to give them feedback. And it's amazing. Nobody disagreed with that feedback. And when they were rejected, they were happy with it because they got the feedback. When they were successful, they were clear why they were successful. That's how we use the actors. Yeah. So now let's move to the virtual reality part. Yeah. Um, I'm imagining you've, you've got some of these headsets in your organization. You slap them on. What do you do? Do you have a game you have them play? Do you still, like, do you set up a scenario for them? How does it all work? So I'm, I'm learning the technology terms. So we've got a skin, yeah. <laughs> and I, I never thought I'd be calling it a skin. But there's a skin, which is an experience, um, and it's called Apollo. Um, and what I, I went through it first to, to experience it. But basically, there's three levels. So there's four people who go in with a headset who are transported to a reality where they need to save themselves off a planet. So it's nothing unlike we would do with, you know, outward bound leadership development or even just the actors. We set them a task and we've got those four people doing it. Yeah. You know, and they, they have a time pressure. They have a countdown. They have to collaborate. The system is, is built so that they have to collaborate and we can watch them and see what they're doing. There's another group who can watch and, and listen, but they can also interact in the ears of the person. So they can see what they're doing, and they can also suggest, do those annoying little prompts that your leaders and managers might do to you every so often, going, no, nah, I wouldn't do it that way if I were you. It's, oh, it's behind you. Yeah. Oh, God, that's the third time you've dropped out. You've not learned by now what's going on. So these people are being professional irritants, as we would call them in the ears of the people, and not being really helpful. And then you've got a third group observing. Now, the amazing thing is the four people who are doing what we call Group A, they have this experience where, and I'll give you an example of it. So we had four of our clients get in that room, and I know them well, and they know each other well. And at one point, one of them was talking over the other one. And we were, you could you could hear, feel it building, because the person being talked over was just getting really annoyed that they weren't being listened to. So eventually, she, you know, this person lost it and said, well, you stop talking over me. And the other person said, oh, I'm sorry, was I? Yes. You were. And then there was this dramatic pause, and then there's this comment which, and you always do. And it's that moment of immersion in virtual reality, yeah. which is different to augmented reality, because augmented you've got part of the real world in. The immersive thing is you just, you're in that space where your natural behaviors are coming out. And that person who just got that feedback, had a, it had a profound effect of it walking out. 
and realizing that she probably spent most of her life being the mouthy one, yeah, talking over the person. Now, if you can do that within a 15-minute session and you can debrief with a psychometric built into the back end of it and you get conversations where each of the teams can go in the A team or the B team and the C team and learn how to coach, how to observe the behaviors and do and lead in teamwork, collaboration, and you can do that in three hours and you can do it virtually where everybody's based at home at the moment. Powerful. Yeah. So that's that's the concept that we're trying to, to prove. So you're doing this virtually. Yeah. You can do you're it. You're sending them headsets. You're literally doing yeah. this live virtual. It's live virtual. So they're in their rooms. We're making sure the dogs and everything else are out of the way so they're not tripping over. You know, we're making sure they're safe. And then we're beaming in and we're starting off. So if you can imagine now in COVID and you think about teams that are wanting to re-engage their people, but they also, you know, most um, managing directors, most leaders at the moment, we're doing more coaching now to talk them through how they're feeling. They want something fresh. They want something new. And this immersive, short, punchy experience that they get from that with VR is a powerful experience. We're finding, mm. yeah, but it's, it's taken a while it's, to buy it's it. It's fascinating. Yeah. Oh, oh I, I believe you. Um, do you have any thoughts on the future of events? I mean, yeah. you, you, this is coaching, which is different because it's mm. uh, coaching is typically kind of, you know, it's one-on-one -on -one small teams. Mm. And, and you know, I guess these VR sets, they're not all that expensive, mm -hmm. uh, you know, yeah. uh, when you buy four of them. Mm -hmm. But if you were to buy uh, 150 of them, you have to be the U.S. military at the point, you know, at yeah. this point. Um, right. Yep. So, so where, where is immersion going generally? Because you've made this experience here now small scale. Mm. Th th does this have any impact for how you think about your next public appearance in a forum mm. or the way that you think about engaging, you know, one to many or, or many to many on a scalable level? Is, is this possible, this kind of immersion that you're talking about here, bringing the, the best parts of physical theater? Mm marrying that with virtual reality. Is that possible in any other more scalable context? I, well, I mean, there's, there's one scalable context, which we do with the actors anyway. So if you can imagine if two people from a team were in there and you put them, two others being the actors, and you scripted some disruption or you, you played in them to be disruptive and you set that context. Yeah, you, so that's the, the immediate, this is my small iteration, learn fast. How do we put two actors in there and get an experience? You think about assessment, and you think that that third level allows maybe the whole of the top 20 leadership team to view their talent going through this process. That's a scalable option. Now, you think about how many people would pay for headhunters to, to put people through, pay them $25,000 to headhunt somebody, and they're still not sure yeah, whether they've seen the true behaviors in them. Put them out in immersive experience, that's massive for, for that. So, so I think there's those two things in there. But... What's not proven yet is the future of learning because for me, there's a, there's a piece about hybrid work. You know, if you go to hybrid work and the, the work, we're going to have people at home, people at work. Those people at work are, are doing classes with us sat at their desk. So they can't be too noisy. They can't get up. They can't do other things. At home, they can do what they want in a lot of cases. So if I, if I put a hypothesis together that the rest of development is still going to be virtual, whether we like it or not, and we're getting better scores for our virtual than face-to-face -face, you know, at the moment, which is surprising me, then hybrid work means that you're going to have to, organizations are going to have to have places where people go to play to do their virtual. Imagine having virtual reality headsets or augmented reality headsets set up there with skins just be able to download. So you could go do 15 minutes in a day and go learn something and go play, book it in. That would break up your day. It would be powerful. You could even have some headspace, some mindfulness sessions that prompt them. And so I see the, the headset prices coming down as you're hinting, you know? I see people using, I see organizations paying for that. And rather than having a training room, they might have booths with 10 or whatever people in who are going through virtual reality, immersive experiences to pitch it. That's my vision of the future, whether I'm proved right or wrong, I don't know. But that's that's what I'm putting my money on at the moment. That's the way it will be. Yeah. Does a timeline like the next decade matter to you? You know, on this podcast, we talk a lot about the next decade. I don't have... Mm. 
everybody think about the next 50 years, but that's sort of where I'm heading. But but if you look at sort of how this is going to evolve, so you've you've made this experience over how many years? Like over the last year, you, you'd say? Uh, this, yeah, just on the VR has only been the last eight months, yeah. We've yeah. been building it up. So, yeah. so take take this forward. Mm. Let, let's assume some amount of tech development, but uh, but you know wh- where where are the humans going to take this? Where are you going <laughs> to yeah. take this? Yeah. So, if you see your business mm. a decade from now, mm. you know where are the headsets? Where are the leadership skills? Uh, is it going to make tangible difference in how people relate to each other at senior levels? Will this become? commonplace do you think and and what's going to happen mm-hmm. i mean is this the kind of transformational thing that will make more empathetic leaders more generally or is this still sort of an incremental bonus thing yeah i, I think it's a bit of both depending on the topic and i think this is about the the leadership choice of topics so one of the areas we're looking or two of the areas we're looking one is 80 to 20 year olds and increasing equity and career choice so if you go back to my choices how it how could we get people to be a better forms of, of career choices? Now, just think about the augmented reality, virtual reality opportunities to show a career. I've got a good friend who's head, of, um, head chef at Claridge's, for example. Wouldn't it be great to be able to get a virtual reality view of what it's like to work in a kitchen? Zappos pay people $5,000 to, to, uh, to leave when they've just been recruited, but wouldn't it be great? And they talk about the bad experiences you're going to get, the tough clients. Wouldn't it be great to have a virtual augmented reality view of that? But also, so if you start to think about that, then you start to think about the future 18 to 20-year-olds, and you start to think about their use of technologies. And my, my daughters, who are 16 and 17, almost scoffed at my headset, and they, they nailed our, our skin in no time at all. So we'll have to raise the game for the 18 to 20-year-olds, but that's going to raise the game for everybody else in technology and immersion. So, so I do believe that the headsets, the augmented reality, if you think about Top Gun, I see in the future an, an augmented eyesight for people who are leaders about where their data is coming from. And I could see us playing with that to say, so I'm going to shift the data and test. They're almost anti-fragile to go Talib's way, to give them concepts that they need to test how they would react in a certain situation. That's my hope, because if we can make it for the attention span deficit, uh, people out there to make it that they can do this in 15, 20 minutes and get a, an exercise like I do every day, say core or physical, then they can build habits and systems into their life that make them more resilient. So Colin, this sounds like a very optimistic future and I don't disagree. This could yeah. be wonderful. Is there not also a big brother side of this? So you were, let's go back to this lady who worked in accounting. Mm. She made a conscious choice. Mm-hmm. Isn't her choice going to be more and more difficult to make? And aren't there people who, who are going to want to have a certain amount of privacy? And, and yep, you know, do you really want your boss and your team to psychologize around you? And, you know, the more immersion and augmentation, the less you can hide. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm not just being paid to work. Mm-hmm. I'm being paid to share my innermost psychological fears and desires mm-hmm. and, and, and flaws. I should be paid 20% more for that. So I, I don't think, and maybe you've misread one, so I'm not saying that I would pay somebody to share their, their flaws. But what I would say is that we pay a lot of money to, to hire people and we pay a lot of money in organizations to get rid of people because the fit is not right. So wouldn't it be better that we had a, a more sophisticated, measurable way of checking fit? But if you think about the big brother attitude, wouldn't it be great if you were able to have a measurement system for the leaders running those organizations that had a more social fabric piece to it, that talked about, you know, if you were tracking a senior leader about how they approach people, how they talk to people. So one of the other areas which I didn't mention before is we're looking at um, diversity, inclusion, and, and almost microaggressions through this. Because one of the biggest areas is that people don't realize that they are almost they're behaving in a way that can be seen as showing microaggressions. A way of doing that is going through branching videos, through VRs, choices. They make choices and they get a, a reaction and see what's going on there. Unless we can do that in a safe space, then leaders are never going to learn, firstly, what it feels like to be disadvantaged. Secondly, what it feels like to be bullied um, because they've either built resilience or they just don't have the awareness. So I, and maybe I am an idealist, but that's my passion. I get the big brother piece, and we've got to have social. We've got to have 
safeguards to ensure that. But once you've made a choice to go out and get a job, wouldn't it be great to have a job that is measured all over and you have the opportunity to, to get a good fit for the role rather than uh, it, it being a role you hate? Yeah. No, it's this is this is very interesting. My my last question to you, Colin, mm. is is, is um, simply this: How do you stay up to date? And how did you start get? How did you get to start exploring VR and other things that you care about? Mm. Um, and what do you recommend to my listeners and viewers in terms of if they are involved in leadership mm. or they are even just managers? So clearly, you know, read your book, um, yeah. think about VR for leadership. Yeah. These are like you know connect with your firm, potential squared, all that stuff. But where else have you sought inspiration and where do you find it? So so I'm a big believer that everybody needs their own source of inspiration, but I'll give you two or three things. And what I hate is when people say, well, here's five things you should do and I'll make you great. Get up at 5 a.m. in the morning, go do uh, you know, whatever it is. However, uh, I was introduced to Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss um, as, a, as a great book. and But he deliberately said at the beginning of the Audible uh, book, he said, this is a choice for you to read through and take what you like from it. So I have a big philosophy in my life is that you've got to create a network around you that you don't even know sometimes you're going to use in the future. And so I started with a principle of pay it forward, started working on my network, pay it forward. I started coaching people, sons and daughters for careers, and I, I wasn't getting anything in return, but I was just building a network. That network now is somebody like Ishmael Amla has just wrote a book called Incremental to Exponential. Great guy, lovely person to talk to, but he gives me ideas. I've got Michael Bungie standing at the coaching habit who I sat next to, was vulnerable, he was vulnerable, and we shared. So I use my network for massive amounts of things. And even there's a guy called Paul Sullivan at Accenture who's involved with the VR uh, augmented reality piece. I use him to pick his brains, and he uses the brains to pick me. So that's one area. If I can tab two, John, the second one is sure. we've got an advisory board and we've created a playground. So we've got three advisors, but these three advisors have never been a non-executive director or advisor to a business before. So we've given them the opportunity to practice their advisory skills, but also we started to get them. And there's somebody who's XEY partner. There's somebody who is involved in design thinking transformation. So we go out and we give people opportunities, but by the way, they also give us a lot of information, guide us to, to thought leaders and practice leaders. So that's how we get it. Yeah. Thanks so much. It's been really valuable. I thank you for sharing about yourself, about your exciting approaches, and for your willingness to explore the next decade with me. It's lovely to be here, John. Thank you for the opportunity. You have just listened to episode 106 of the Futurist podcast with host Trunarne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the disruption of failure. In this conversation, we talked about how to beat failure at its own game. My takeaway is that failure is such a rich source of growth because it has the seeds of destruction implanted and there are no guarantees. Yet, there is no alternative to facing your own demons if you want to perform at your best. Does it mean that we should be more wrong? We should at least feel emboldened to be brave, knowing that being wrong is seldom the end of the world, although sometimes it feels that way. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 76 on the future of risk and resilience, episode 73 on the future of social learning, or episode 39 on the future of flux. Futurized, conversations that matter.